It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, welcome to Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast. I am your host, Carrie. And I am Larissa. Good day to you, Miss Carrie. Hello. I would love to hear what's on your mind. Well, I got a few things, but let's just get this out of the way. What do you think about Megan's signing up the, with the William Morris Agency? I and think. Her new look, and her new look. But I, I look at her face and something has been done. It's not just the hair. What has been done? I have no idea. You would. You would oh know better God. than me. And by the way, uh, Jessica Mulrooney is in London. Really? Why? Yeah. For the, I don't know if she's there for the coronation, but big news, she's there. They're not friends anymore, right? No. No, so they're is, not. Or is, she's probably saying, well, I just need to step back from you. Is Megan signing with William Morris for talent or for production? Well, this is what I looked up. She's signing up for them to represent, not for her to act, but for them to represent her personal brand and like Archie Well and all that. Yeah. And when they were, first of all, I also think that game and the Kissatron and not taking his kiss or whatever, uh-huh. I think that was acting. I think all of that was acting like and contrived. Was that at the Laker game? Yeah, that was all announced like the same day as her sign with William Morris and that she wasn't going to the coronation. It was all in that like one little like 24 hour span. Why would you not kiss your husband on the kiss Tron, Jumbo yeah. Tron? Yeah. Why? Because she wants it always to be like he's in love with her and all that. I don't think people realize, but they had their lawyer there. They had VP of production, VP of this, like all the people that work for them. And it's like, what do these people do 40 hours a week? Because they produced the two things on Netflix, mm-hmm. the one on leadership or whatever, which you didn't even see. Mm-mm. The legacy that New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is building stems from a belief in never losing her capacity for empathy. Actually, Will doesn't need a whole lot of, you know, massively thick-skinned politicians. They do need people who care. You know, the odd sensitive flower is, is okay. This was inspired by Nelson Mandela, who once said, what counts in life is not the mere fact that we have lived. It is what difference we have made to the lives of others that will determine the significance of the life we lead. His life left a lasting mark on the world, a legacy that has helped inspire so many others to stand up, to fight for change, and to become leaders. So this is in memory of Madiba. It was made to remind us of the difference one person can make. It's about people who have made brave choices. Leaders who have walked alongside him and followed in his footsteps. Caring for others. Working for a better and more equal world. And giving inspiration to the rest of us. To live, to lead. And they did their podcast, which I don't think they're going to bring back. And they did the docuseries. Like, what do these people do for 40 hours a week? You know they have more stuff in the works. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And it's probably all having to do with her. It could be as much as come up with new ideas for me. Pitch me new stuff. And that could definitely take 40 hours a week. Because, shit, hold on. Let me let my dog in. Can you hear that? I heard the one that, yeah, I heard just a little bit. I think that they're either looking for new projects for her or developing her projects. I don't think she's interested in taking anyone else's pitches, by the way. I think she's only interested in pitches that have to do with her, her, and her. Maybe a little bit of Harry, a dash of Harry. Yeah, true. Yeah, I feel like he's more of an accessory in some of her photos and all that. He has turned into an accessory, a good accessory. I mean, well, it depends. I mean, I really think she got more bang for her buck from the, what were those tennis shoes she used to wear, the plastic brand? I forgot. 
Oh, I totally know what you mean. Her fashion gets more acknowledgement than her husband at yeah. this point. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's back to wearing shorts again. So moving on to another topic we love. We always love wealthy people. We love dynasties. We love seeing them. Uh, what's going on with them. We love the dysfunction, all that stuff. So, Oh, yes. You know, I live for it. I know. So did you, were you watching that show Succession? I have not. And I, should I binge it? That's what I'm Well, yeah. And so uh, that's what a lot of people are saying. They're like, it's a little slow going, but you will start getting into it. Hey, guess what? I recall my father was a nasty, racist, neglectful individual. What was it that they used to say around here? No blacks, no Jews, no women above the fourth floor. He used to lock me in a cage. The only thing I would struggle with understanding is some of the corporate terms. Like, I don't know what's illegal or not. Like, I would be like the best stooge for some illegal (laughs) plot. Like, I'd be in jail like Teresa Judice and be just sitting there (laughs) in prison. Like, I thought that was legal. (laughs) This is a one from Daily Mail. Are these the real life Roys? Meet the wealthy and very powerful Fannies families fannies (laughs) with uncanny similarities to the scandal-ridden succession clan from media moguls worth 26 billion to entertainment empire owners marred by bitter legal battles and power plays so what family would you guess they would have put on their list murdoch yeah that's the very first one you're so good rupert murdoch there's a lot of business going on there rupert murdoch is an enigma. Owner of The Sun, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and hundreds of other media outlets across the world. And yet his story is rarely told. We have nothing to say at all. He was and remains one of the most interesting people in the world. I used to say at the time, I learned more from listening to him for five minutes than I would two or three years at any other media company. To some, he's an extraordinary businessman. Morning, Mr. Murdoch. To others, he's a darker force. For decades, Murdoch has been a force in politics at the highest level. This is a foreigner interfering in British politics. We learned a long time ago what to do. The Murdochs always rally around one another, but what divides the children is that they each have their own interest in what they're all going to get out of this huge inheritance. I wonder if any of these kids want to take any responsibility for the lawsuit, the um, recent voting machine lawsuit and the loss. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of another one that's going on, which there's a related article I posted on our website about it. So, you know, Prince Harry's going through that lawsuit right now where he's suing the Associated Papers. Yes. And part of that has like UK Daily Mail under it and all that, even though um, what UK Daily Mail got in trouble with with Megan was that they published this quote unquote private letter, even though she had basically her PR go through it and help write it, thinking that it was going to get leaked. And that came out in the court. And it came out too. Yeah. And it came out other things that like they did cooperate with Omid or Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, <laughs> uh, The Mail on Sunday newspaper has lost its appeal in its ongoing privacy dispute with Meghan, Duchess of Sussex. Associated newspapers had been appealing against the ruling not to hold a full trial after the paper reproduced parts of a handwritten letter from the Duchess to her father, Thomas Markle, in 2019. Our correspondent, Helena Wilkinson, is at the Royal Courts of Justice in central London. Tell us more about the ruling, Helena. 
Well, the three judges here at the Court of Appeal delivered their judgment in the last hour or so. This was an appeal that was heard uh, earlier this month over three days. The appeal was brought by Associated Newspapers Limited. They're the publishers of the Mail on Sunday and the Mail Online. Now, you'll remember that earlier this year, the Duchess of Sussex won a case against the publishers for a breach of privacy and copyright. It was after uh, the publishers, the, the online Mail on Online and the Mail on Sunday published extracts of a handwritten letter that Meghan Markle had written to her father in 2018. She won that case, but that the judgment in that case was what was called a summary judgment. And what that means is that it was felt by the judge that there was no a prospect at all for a defence to be brought by Associated Newspapers Limited. So there wasn't a trial. And that was what Associated Newspapers Limited wanted, and that's why they brought the appeal here to the Court of Appeal. But they have had their appeal dismissed, so a significant victory for the Duchess of Sussex. And we can hear now from uh, one of the judges, the judge who delivered that judgment, who handed it down a little earlier on today, Sir Geoffrey Sir Voss. It was hard to see what evidence could have been adduced at trial that would have altered that situation. The judge had been, uh, we found, in as good a position as any trial judge to look at the article in People magazine, the letter itself, and the Mail on Sunday articles to decide if publication of the contents of the letter was appropriate to rebut the allegations made against Mr Markle. The judge had correctly decided that whilst it might have been proportionate to publish a very small part of the letter for that purpose, it was not necessary to publish half the contents of the five-page letter as Associated Newspapers had done. The court reiterated in conclusion the narrowness of the issues uh, that it had had to decide. As you said, Helena, this is a significant victory for the Duchess of Sussex. What's been her reaction? Well, the Duchess of Sussex released a statement soon after the judgment was handed down here at the Court of Appeal. Uh, in reaction to the ruling, she said in a statement, this is a victory not just for me, but for anyone who has ever felt scared to stand up for what's right. Uh, the Duchess of Sussex continued in her statement and she said, while this win is precedent-setting, what matters most is that we are now collectively brave enough to reshape a tabloid industry that conditions people to be cruel and profits from the lies and pain that they create. What this does mean, of course, Rebecca, is that there won't be a trial, and that's something that uh, not only the Duchess... Five words... You pronounce wrong two years before your brain starts shutting down. Dementia is now known. Harry and Meghan were out and about last night at a Veterans Day gala in New York City. They're back on the front pages here this morning because it was revealed yesterday that Meghan has apologised to the Court of Appeal about her involvement with the writers of the biography Finding Freedom after leaked texts proved that she did, in fact, cooperate with the authors. Well, our royal editor, Russell Myers, joins me now. Why, why on earth would they do this? Why on earth would they say that they didn't cooperate with a book when they did? It doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Good morning, Lorraine. Well, an absolutely extraordinary day at the Court of Appeal yesterday, and as you've just uh, outlined, and the front pages are screaming this morning that Meghan uh, has had to apologise to the court, uh, astonishingly, for failing to remember a series of conversations and a series of text messages and emails that pointedly uh, go to the fact that she did indeed cooperate with the authors of the Finding Freedom um, biography. Now, Harry and Meghan have always said, 
notably through their lawyers, it must be said, that they did not cooperate, they didn't collaborate with the authors. However, uh, Megan emailed a series of five points, a uh, series of reminders to a former aide to uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, a man called Jason Canalf, who has given a witness statement to the Court of Appeal. Now, I'll just read you some of Megan's apology. And she said, I did not have the benefit of seeing these emails, and I apologise to the court for the fact that I had not remembered these exchanges at the time. Now, this is, at its, uh, at its very least, fairly embarrassing, but this could mean that uh, the, the, the Mail on Sunday who brought this case uh, to, to, to the Court of Appeal because they had lost a previous judgment, um, because they'd been found to, uh, to, 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 to have printed this, uh, this letter to um, uh, Megan's father, that uh, they've lost his case against privacy, uh, and so it could go back to court now. It's it's baffling to me that if you're going to take a newspaper to court, you have to be absolutely rock solid. And I know it was about the letter, but there's more things coming out about this this letter that um, that she she sent to her dad, calling him daddy. And there's lots of things that are coming out now. I wonder why it's not. It didn't come out beforehand, though. It seems really strange, the timing. Well, the, the, the two issues here are not only because of the, the, the book, and this is proving uh, quite embarrassing, and it may point to the fact that uh, Meghan has been potentially economical with the truth, but she, the, the, the reason this case was brought by Meghan is because she believed that the Mail on Sunday in printing five articles from a letter that she'd written to her father uh, were against her privacy and her data protection. Now, the Mail on Sunday was found to have uh, acted illegally in those points. Uh, and now we're seeing that the fact that Meghan's uh, exchanges with her uh, communication secretary, Jason Knauf, uh, pointed to the fact that she did believe that this letter would come into the public sphere. She said to him, um, given I have only ever called him daddy, it may make sense to open as such, despite him being less than paternal. And in the unfortunate event it leaked, it would still pull at the heartstrings. And now, Megan continued in one of her ex email exchanges and texts to Jason Knauf, obviously everything I have drafted is with the understanding that it could be leaked. So I have been meticulous in my word choice, but please let me know if anything stands out to you as a liability. Now, there was another 22-page witness statement from Megan where she is saying, essentially, that regardless of whether I thought that this may end up in the public domain, it wasn't my intention that it would uh, essentially be his right to put it into a newspaper. So it's got particularly very, very messy. I think you see the headlines today. There are people uh, saying that... Um, uh, Megan is a little misforgetfulness. I mean, this is something that the Court of Appeal judges will have to decide on whether this goes back to the High Court now and, uh, and whether we do actually see a full trial between Meghan Markle and, uh, and her father, Thomas, which would be absolutely explosive. What came out on this one is that some hefty payout was made to William because this is going back to when their phones were hacked and they, they had... Yeah. Well, there's... And the judge, I sent you the articles, had said there's inconsistencies in, yes, in, in Harry's stories. Yeah. So, um, uh, so what I was, th the article that's posted is really sad because there was a 13 year old girl that was murdered back in the early 2000s. Uh -huh. And the original paper that is now closed that was doing that hacking had hacked into her voicemails when before she was like found or <gasps> and so it gave like the parents false hope thinking she was checking her voicemails oh i so, do remember yeah. this yes yeah they didn't sue um but it or maybe no i don't think they sued i really don't but uh yeah so isn't that millie Dow dowler was her name it's so sad to me so does rupert own the daily mail or the mirror I think he owns the Daily Mail, doesn't he? I don't he, know. Um, what doesn't he? he own? <laughs> yeah, he owns like New News Corp Australia, too, which was is like he does Australian ones. Mm -hmm. um, News Corp itself is thought to be worth more than nine point one billion, and Fox Corporation more than seventeen point four billion, and so. They're making a parallel between the Murdochs and the Roys. Oh. And that his children 
have also taken up key roles in the business and that obviously he's well past retirement age. And so he's been married four times previously and recently got engaged again, which I think there's some war going on there. They got, they got, they are not engaged anymore because she went down a QAnon rabbit hole and he's like, Oh, wow, really? Even though he's, yeah. Did you hear that? No, but it was on Twitter. Over to showbiz now, media mogul Rupert Mordick and former San Francisco police cap chaplain Anne Leslie Smith have called off their engagement just two weeks after its announcement. The 92-year-old media mogul and Smith, who is 26 years younger than him, had planned to get married in the summer. This would have been the billionaire's fifth marriage. Reports suggest that the breakup happened after murder grew uncomfortable with Smith's outspoken evangelical views. Murdoch and Smith met in September at his vineyard Moraga in California and last August Murdoch divorced his fourth wife Jerry Hall. Previously Smith was married to American musician and radio and television broadcaster Chester Smith till his death in 2008. I feel like there is one of those in everybody's life too like everybody knows someone that believes in like the whole conspiracy stuff. He went cuckoo like cuckoo cuckoo kachu like they're transmitting messages to, i mean like really and i guess he called off the engagement so he, he has a daughter i always think it's weird when you meet people whose kids are also like because i don't think of them as being old and their uh-huh. kids are already past retirement age because murdoch has prudence 64 elizabeth 54 Grace, 21, Chloe, 19, eldest son, Lachlan, 51, is the heir apparent, and he's been running the family business with him since 2014. Wait, I thought the one daughter was the heir apparent. Wasn't there a battle between yes, the daughter there was. and the son? And his son, James, 50, put himself out of the running when he resigned from the board of News Corps in 2020 due to disagreements about editorial content. Yeah, I remember that. You've interviewed Rupert James Lachlan for stories uh, many years ago. What can you tell us uh, about James Murdoch? Well, I'll tell you that the day that I met James Murdoch, he was sitting at a bar with a stack of analyst documents, all on media companies, because I'm sure he knew at the time, he was in his 30s, that he was groomed to take over this company. Uh, in interviews, Rupert had always spoke very glowingly that uh, James was his go-to guy to understand digital because at the time Mert Rupert was in his 70s the internet was just coming on board and he just had no clue how to segue from what he had into that world James was his go-between to, to explain all of that to him so it was quite clear even back then that he had sort of pre, you know had preferential uh, thinking towards James running this empire now James is what about he's 42 years old yep. he's a graduate of Horace Mann he went to Harvard University but didn't graduate left early I understand that he's a cyclist and a black belt in karate what about his specific business experience in the in the Rupert Murdoch Empire you know that's the most interesting thing because of the three children the one who's had the most success on their own is the three, uh, three children out of the four with uh, of the original uh, with Murdoch right Man. because the other children they were never really considered part of this and everybody knew that many years ago but of the three from the original wife Elizabeth was the one who's had the success independently her production company is, is the biggest in the world that's been reported and it was sold to, to 20th Century Fox James has had a couple of little ventures along the way but none of them really proved music he was a he big was, yes. music entrepreneur for a while well he was a music entrepreneur never really became a big one okay none of it really took off the way Elizabeth's independent ventures took off and Lachlan was always the guy he preferred staying in Sydney it seemed he really preferred running or at least he was given the newspapers to run the older Murdoch Empire James was always a little bit more involved in the global aspect of the business and when he was put next to Chase Carey who is you know the well-respected operator that Rupert chose to run the the operation in LA it really became clear ah yes this is where Rupert is going and today news really solidifies that for everybody. What about the future role of uh, Chase Carey? I suspect that this will be a gradual handing over of the day-to-day operations to James. I'm, you know, Chase is very, very well respected by Murdoch. I'm sure he's very well compensated by Murdoch. So he probably can slowly step back and let James step in. You know, the benefit here is Murdoch is kind of a wild card. James is much more of, a, of a, an acceptable uh, executive, if you will. And you talk about this merger possibility with Time Warner. James kind of fits into the Time Warner culture much more than a renegade like Rupert does. 
but who is the foot race between Lachlan and which daughter? Because one's 54 and one's 51, right? Yeah, let me look it up really quick. But in 2011, Vanity Fair revealed that the Murdochs had met with a family therapist to discuss the issue of succession. I think the okay. I know I know which one you're talking about because I actually saved that article one time. Like it was the daughter who supposedly followed along in his footsteps and there was kind of a war breaking out between Lachlan and the daughter. James had looked most likely to be Rupert's successor. But that was before the failures, which happened on his watch. The phone hacking scandal is a real turning point because this is the moment where James loses his footing. Rupert Murdoch sees James's experience in the UK as indicative that James can't really manage things on his own. What Elizabeth does here is violate the rule of the Murdochs, which is that she's publicly criticizing both her father and her brother. And that's just not something you're allowed to do in the family. Writing in McTaggart has been quite a welcome distraction from some of the other nightmares much closer to home. <laughs> yes, you have met some of my family before. <laughs> You're quite forceful in offering your opinion that James should take a step back. Is that true? Um, uh, yes, it is. Liz's disapproval even infects the relationship between James and Rupert. And James and Rupert are, are um, at each other. When he leaves London, it seems like James is going to have to wander in the wilderness for a long time. Which only leaves Lachlan. He seems to fit the bill. He had been working for the American arm of his father's company. He shares many of his father's right-wing views and he seems to dislike governments interfering in their media businesses. And these are all from the same marriage because they seem to be very close in age. Are any of them illegitimate children? Well, he had like four different marriages. Yeah. But I think the one that we're thinking of is... Elizabeth, right? Yeah. This is interesting. It's called Murdoch's Missing Daughter, and it was published in March 26, 2014 from the New Yorker. And so at first I'm like, oh, she went missing. A prominent name is missing from Wednesday's announcement that Rupert Murdoch is elevating his sons, Lachlan and James Murdoch, within News Corp. Uh, Lachlan, who's 42, will be the non-executive co-chairman. James, who's 41, will be the co-chief operating officer of 21st Century Fox. The absent name belongs to Elizabeth Murdoch, an older sister to Lachlan and James. So she has a thriving television company called Shine. It develops shows like MasterChef and The Biggest Loser. And it was acquired by News Corp in 2011 for $670 million. At this point, it was triggering speculation that her father had successfully lured her back into the fold. She combines the best of her brothers in one package. An associate Murdoch's told me for a profile of Elizabeth in 2012, she has the brains of James and the heart of Lachlan. So with News Corp now split into two companies, one television-centered and one print-based, it appeared as if there was one day going to be two chairmen and two CEO positions to divide among the three Murdoch siblings who are engaged in the company. The, those three children are from Murdoch's second wife, Anna. Murdoch Mann, an older daughter Prudence from his first marriage, is not involved. Grace and Chloe is two daughters with his third wife, Wendy Deng Murdoch, which I remember that one. Yeah, well, I know that. She has like a toy boy or something now, with yeah. whom he has now reached a divorce settlement, are as yet too young. Wendy's fight to ensure that her daughters will not only inherit an economic interest in the company, but an equal voice and financial stake was one of the Murdoch sagas of the past decade. She used to, uh, Wendy, uh, after she graduated from college in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, she came out to work for Star Television in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. And she was in the business development area there mm -hmm. where I met her. Mm -hmm. And she interpreted for me as we went around China. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who wouldn't fall in love with a beautiful woman like that? Fall mm -hmm. in love with her. And I asked her. And she said no. <laughs> and uh, it took me a long time to persuade her. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, she's very tough. Really. <laughs> very tough. 
a successful man needs a critical wife. Uh, it brings him down to earth. Uh, she has taught our two little girls to speak perfect Mandarin. And everybody at home speaks Mandarin except me. So they only tell me what they think I need to know. She is a wonderful mother and uh, has given me two beautiful daughters. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, she's a very good businesswoman. But the drama of his divorce from Wendy is eclipsed by this family drama. Elizabeth angered her father and James by taking a forceful private and then public position against Newcore's initial defense of the corrupt phone hacking and cash for news practice by two of its London tabloids. Wow. Yeah, this is seriously this this is like a TV this is like a TV show. Oh. And then there's another family I bet you wouldn't even guess. Hold on. Rupert Murdoch's mega dynasty, who's who in the media mogul's family from his four ex-wife to his six children, but oh, where's the call off engagement? It just said I need to read you the call off engagement. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. The Salzburgers have been at the helm of the New York Times for more than 100 years and continue to pass the $6.21 billion corporation down from father to firstborn son. I had no idea about that. I did not know this family. I did know at one point, and I might be wrong on newspapers, and this is where people probably get very annoyed because I just throw things out there. I think during World War II, because I've been going through a World Uh War II phase again, and some medieval stuff too. One of the newspapers in New York had actually didn't fully publish stories about the Holocaust early on, like the, you know, you know when the Soviets first yeah. found it, because a lot of people here didn't know what was going on and all that. And, mm-hmm. and the family was Jewish themselves. But wow. they, yeah, yeah, there was a, they made, they made an editorial choice. And I don't know if it's because they were Jewish and, what was going on and they didn't want them to think that they were focusing on that or yeah, or yeah, draw yeah. attention to the fact that they were Jewish. Um, I, I don't know what was behind that, but yeah, that they, that they sanitized some of the articles. It was not easy for foreign correspondents to report what was really happening in Germany. Sources were often too frightened to talk. Reporters were reluctant to quote witnesses by name for fear of betraying them to the secret police, called the Gestapo. The Nazis controlled the German press and exhorted foreigners to report on affairs in Germany without attempting to interpret them. What that meant, the American journalist William L. Shirer wrote in his diary, is that we should jump on the bandwagon of Nazi propaganda. But the best American journalists did write about what was going on, however much the Nazi government tried to hide it. Edgar Ansel Maurer of the Chicago Daily News covered Hitler's rise to power with such brutal candor that in the summer of 1933, the Nazis made it clear they could no longer guarantee his safety in Berlin. As Maurer was leaving the country, the Nazi official asked, when he thought he might return to Germany. The American answered, when I come back with about two million of my countrymen. Dorothy Thompson's turn would come the following summer. She had covered Europe off and on since 1920, earning a reputation for vivid reporting and for making herself part of her stories. She had interviewed Hitler for Cosmopolitan magazine before he came to power and had dismissed him then as formless, faceless, insecure, the very prototype of the little man. But she had also read Mein Kampf, saw that Hitler's nightmare vision of Germany's future was fast becoming a reality and refused to mince words while saying so. The situation for the Jews is just ghastly, helpless, she said. Not only are the reports about the atrocities unexaggerated, They are underrated. She returned to America for a time, but continued to write for the Jewish Daily Bulletin in New York. When she visited Germany again in the summer of 1934, Hitler, who had never forgotten her scornful article about him, 
and was appalled that she, a non-Jew, had written for a Jewish publication, personally ordered her out of the country within 24 hours. On the morning of August 26th, she boarded a train for France, her arms filled with American beauty roses given her by her admiring colleagues. I really was put out of Germany for the crime of blasphemy, she commented. My offense was to think that Hitler is just an ordinary man. Adolf's fifth-generation descendant. Yeah, it's, they're not considered a household name outside of New York media circles, which I was... Most fans believe that rather than being the inspiration behind the Roys, the Sulzbergers bear greater resemblance to the fictional Pierce clan. The Pierces were Logan Roy's rivals in season two as he announced his intention to acquire the Pierces PGMM company. Okay, here's another one. I can't believe you didn't say this one. The Redstones. Oh, Summer Redstone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. When is, is he almost dead? I know. And I think, wasn't he engaged recently? That guy is still kicking, man. Where do we begin, you two? I mean, this is very dishy. But I had to wonder, do you think the average person really gives a flying you-know-what about CBS, Viacom, and Sumner Redstone? Jim, I'll start with you. <laughs> well, I don't think that matters because the story is about much more than particular companies or even these particular characters. To, to us, it, you know, I think we both saw this as it's a family drama. It's a story about a father and a daughter. It's about a woman being thrust into the male shark tank of Hollywood and surmounting one obstacle after another. And, you know, other people have compared to succession. I think it goes way beyond succession. It's entertaining, but I think it is like no good novels are, I hope. It's very revealing about our times. It's almost Shakespearean in many ways with, I don't even know all the Shakespearean plays that could be bundled up and thrown into this one. And I thought about it's like, it's like succession, billions and dynasty all <laughs> rolled into one. Rachel, have I forgotten any drama? Well, I've been joking that this is King Lear meets Weekend at Bernie's. That's a concept, right? <laughs> he dyes his hair, too. you got to see him with his dyed hair. Wait, let me read you this, okay? So Murdoch is 92. He divorced Jerry Hall last year, right, after his big yeah. health scare. And he got engaged to Leslie Smith, a former um, dental hygienist turned conservative radio host, uh, the same year, right? And it said... Um, Murdoch said he had become increasingly uncomfortable with Smith's outspoken evangelical views. Like, I think she went total Lori yeah. Vallow. I'm not sure, but I think she went. Uh, and then it goes on. The Vanity Fair has a whole big article on some of her beliefs and some of the stuff that, like, he'll go a little crazy, but I don't think he'll yeah. go uh, <laughs> Leslie Smith crazy or whatever her name is. Yes. Anyway done now he's looking for another spry 50 plus year old contributor james stewart good morning to you good morning this new book is called unscripted the epic battle for a media empire and the redstone family legacy um and it is a real life version of succession in so many ways well yeah i mean it, it is I, we thought at the beginning it was kind of the me too meets the corporate boardroom because it, it started is, as a as a moonbez book it, i think no well moonbez cvs corporate you know governance sort of thing and then we realized oh it's so much bigger than this and there's so many unbelievably interesting characters it really turned much more into this family drama it is very much like succession although i have to say um, you know, Logan Roy has nothing compared to Sumner Redstone. The reality is so beyond anything you could dream of. So it is all very twisted. We were talking in the commercial break. Just, I mean, <laughs> all of the. So if if Sumner was alive today and he read this book, what do you think he would say to you? Well, I think he'd say it's accurate. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things about Sumner is he, he was self-aware. I mean, he was always saying, you know, I'm going to live forever. But he confided in one of his many 
mistresses, if that's you what you want to call you it. You think he knew all these mistresses were taking advantage of him, which is basically what you, you, you appear to report? Well, late in life, you see, he, he's deteriorating. And, you know, I'm not sure. I think part of the story is the vulnerability, which I think anyone could relate to as an elderly right. relative. But, you know, he, he was self-aware for a while. And one of the things I found interesting, he said, well, you know, I, I don't want to die because I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to be judged. Oh when I meet my maker. And so he, he right. knew that there was a what lot of What do you make behavior. of the relationship ultimately between Sherry, his daughter, and him? Because there is some sense that I think she still loves him in many oh, ways. Yeah. And there's a deep, there's a, that, that, that runs deep. But his view of her, at least during some moments that you report in this oh, book, are horrible. so tortured and so horrible that it's almost hard to understand what those feelings could be like today. Well, that relationship is so interesting. And I think, you know, a lot's been written about fathers and sons, but not so much about fathers and daughters. And it's a very complicated relationship here. You see the gender issues, the sexism, his admiration for her at times, then his, is it his competitiveness, his jealousy, his resentment when she actually succeeds or gets some credit for something. I, again, I think, again, anyone, and particularly women who have struggled with, you know, relationships with their parents will find this really uh, interesting and rich. But I can't explain it, Neon. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Um, when you think about what's happened to Paramount and CBS today, which is right. to say they've been merged back together, uh, that's something that Sumner Redstone did not want to happen, something that Sherry did. And it's clearly something that Les Moonves didn't want to happen, which was his undoing to some degree. Definitely. How will that be measured? Well, I don't think there's really any doubt that Sherry was right about that. I mean, scale in, I mean, the, the business is going through upheaval, as, as everyone who watches your show knows. And scale is important. And they needed scale. They should have merged a lot, a lot sooner. Right. And the fighting. You think they should have merged a lot sooner, or you think that they could have sold off one of the businesses? four or five years ago when valuations were at a completely different place? Well, it's hard to, to rerun that. They would have been better off merging and selling the whole thing when valuations. Could they have you know, sold off CBS? You know, maybe. But I think Sherry was probably right, merge them and sell them. And by the way, I think most people still think it probably needs to be sold. It's, it doesn't really yet. Early in his 80s, he told CBS, I have no intention of retiring or dying. I could live and work forever. There's a family picture here of of them, and the clothes are kind of misfitted, like his family. How many kids does he have? Um, in this picture, there's like three or four. And he, how many marriages? Um, oh, oh, uh, wait! I got to tell you this part. 2006, uh -huh. Brent sued his father for his share of the family fortune after claiming Sumner had always given Char Sherry preferential treatment. The lawsuit was settled. Two years later, and the patriarch bought out his son's shares in the family business for roughly $240 million. Wow. Yeah. So in 2007, he, was, he publicly addressed his daughter's position and said in a letter to Forbes that his children had nothing to do with building his empire. Really? And he was eventually forced to give up authority as executive chairman of CBS and Viacom in 2016 following a court-ordered examination by a geriatric psychiatrist. This sounds like, um, what's his name? The lawyer? Name. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, the one that d d took all the money from his victims publicly, and now he says he has dementia. Oh, uh, Girardi. Yeah. Yep. Yes. This is who it sounds like. So Sherry is now in control of the media empire following her father's death in 2020. Sumner didn't die. What? Did he die? Wait. Yeah. He August did? 11, 2020. And here I am thinking that he... He was still engaged to somebody. You're like, he's got game. Not in the company doesn't have game. Yeah. They also mentioned the Hearst family, uh -huh. the Maxwell's family firm, which is, you know who that is, Gazelle's oh, dad. Yep. Elaine and yep, we covered uh, those. Yep. Yeah, Robert Maxwell. Yep. So, yeah. So those were the families. Wow. I'm surprised the Sacklers aren't on there. Oh, and you asked me how many times Sumner was married. Yeah, this up really quick. And then God, I'm up. looking at all these pictures of Sumner, and there's a different woman in every one of them. I'm going to say five. Okay. What are you going to say? Let me see. One, I'm going to say three, like four. I'm going to say four. Okay, I'm going to say like three because I, th I think he eventually got like saved. You know, like they were like, no, he can't yeah. get married. So he lived to be 97. He had. Let me look. 
He had two. What? Mm-hmm. Are some of these pictures with his daughter? <laughs> I just know he had quite a few. Um, oh, and he was in the Signal Corps, Signal's Intelligence Service, SIS, as a first lieutenant during uh, 1944 to 45. That's right. Okay. Um, he was friends with Buffett, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wait, wait. What are we talking about? He worked in mili- he worked in Washington yeah. D.C. Oh oh oh! Get this: Redstone served as a first lieutenant in the United States Army during World War II with a team at the Signals Intelligence Service that decoded Japanese messages. This is like our early, like you know, intelligence code breakers. I, I told you about Vent Hill here, right? What, the winery right here. Mm-hmm. It's okay. So the original building, I think, still stands, and you can go in there. And you can see the code breaking machine. It's at a winery. And wow. it, what happened is there was a guy who was who owned this property. It was a farm, like the the winery's in the farm building, and he happened to be listening to like a shortwave radio. You know, back then you did that for yeah. fun, as you do. <laughs> hot hot Saturday night. Well, he I'm inter- a I'm a ham operator on the weekends, yeah. by the way. Yeah. <laughs> What's your call sign? <laughs> <laughs> he was listening to the ham radio. He heard the Japanese. Not the Japanese, Germans on there, and it was like a taxi driver, a spy, or something like that. I would have to, like, basically, he intercepted messages. In November of 1943, Oshima was taken on an extensive tour of the Atlantic Wall, the system of concrete, barbed wire, machine guns, and artillery that was to be Germany's first line of defense against an Allied invasion. Oshima's 20-page report on what he saw during this tour was intercepted, deciphered, and sent to the planners of the D-Day invasion. General Marshall, the American Army Chief of Staff in the Second World War, he said that Oshima Hiroshi, the Japanese ambassador in Berlin, was our key source of information concerning Hitler's intentions. They took over the building of the farm, so it looked still like a farm, but they were out there decoding messages that they were intercepting. Oh, wow. I want to go there. So when I come out, we're going there. Chill, darling. Um, I am very, very proud to be here and to be uh, introducing Professor Laurel Leff, the author of Buried by the Times. In many ways, she is really the ideal person to have written this exceptional study. She's currently and a lecturer at Northeastern, at Northeastern University. But prior to entering the academy, Professor Leff spent years as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and the Miami Herald. And who better than a seasoned reporter to painstakingly research, dissect, analyze, and report on another major news organization, the New York Times, and its coverage of the mass murder of European Jewry. For myself, as someone who has spent a number of years working at a variety of newspapers, I think Professor Leff has really provided readers, everyone, an invaluable service just for her description of the mechanics of a newspaper. Exactly as Larry said, she delivers a clear and compelling narrative of the inner workings of the New York Times during the years of World War II. I wouldn't imagine that that much has changed since then. In fact, as Daniel Johnson put it in his review of Professor Leff's book in Commentary Magazine, nothing changes as rapidly as the news. Nothing changes as slowly as newspapers. The truth is, and really this is what everyone should understand, there's no better way to get your news when you read a newspaper, when you watch a television news report, than to realize what's going on behind the curtain to understand that the final product, the story you're reading or you're hearing or you're seeing, is made up of a million small details and passes through a lot of hands. In Buried by the Times, Professor Leff explains in glorious detail how the tragic and awful news from Europe was collected, written, edited, and reported. How reporters on the ground in Europe had their own prejudices about what news was important, how the competition between reporters in Europe and reporters and editors in New York influenced what got into the paper, 
And then, certainly centrally, nothing was so influential or powerful as the attitude of the then publisher Arthur Hayes Sulzberger. Ultimately, it was his view that the Jews were not or must not be singled out for special treatment, coverage, or pleading because of their suffering at the hands of Hitler that meant that America's most influential newspaper committed not only a sin, a moral sin, but an egregious journalistic sin, one that is the first rule uh, any reporter is taught, first day on the job. They buried the lead. It is clearer than ever from Professor Leff's book that Sulzberger's own prejudices and fears caused him to impose what amounted to a near blackout on the news of the destruction of European Jewry. What news there was was inserted deep into the paper rather than blaring from headlines on the front page. And the timing of this book, and in fact of her lecture tonight, couldn't be more auspicious. Many of us in the media have spent the last week or so debating the influence of the American press on current events, on the course of events. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Let's play a game, all right? On the count of three, name your favorite dinosaur. Don't even think about it, just name it. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, it's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out Miss deeds and intrigue podcast.com but we don't have a complaints department just to give you a little heads up the podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast the information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness Accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.